You're listening to the BCTLE Podcast, a resource made possible by the BD Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence at Taylor University. I'm your host, Timothy Berkey. Well, Jeff, welcome to the BCTLE Podcast. It's great to have you. Well, I am glad to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Of course. Um, it's a, as a new faculty member, it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of... Um, inspirational, I guess, to see what all is being done here at Taylor Mm -hmm. and uh, the support that's here for new faculty, uh, as well as the the, uh, collegiality of everybody and these kinds of experiences where faculty can share with each other. I'm really enjoying. I'm so glad to hear that. That's an important part of what I love about our campus, too, is the conversations. I, um, when the podcast started, it was because uh, the things that I love most about uh, teaching often are the uh, talking with my colleagues about what they are doing and what I learned from that and, and shaping my ideas in the classroom off of what I hear you're doing in your classroom. Yeah. So um, you mentioned you're a new faculty member, but we were just uh, chatting, not new to teaching. Not new to teaching, right. Yeah. I've been teaching now for 15, 16 years, something like that. Um, most recently at the school that shall not be named. <laughs> yep, just down the road from just us. Just down the road, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's what I, how I refer to it with my students. <laughs> well, in a recent BCTLE session, uh, we got a peek at what your experience in teaching has led towards or, or some of the things that you've been doing recently in teaching and trying to put a number to how long you've been working on this uh, idea, this pedagogy, this approach called problem-based learning? Yeah, it's probably been now eight, nine years, something like that. Um, Got started as we were looking to start a doctoral program, and we wanted specifically, since there's so many doctoral programs out there, we wanted to do something that would be unique and different, satisfy a need in the marketplace. Um, and we did some focus groups with uh, people who had uh, been successful in completing their doctorate with people who had not been successful and trying to understand um, things that were excited them about doctoral programs, things they absolutely disliked about it. Uh, and ultimately, uh, we wanted to, to find an approach that would minimize those barriers and maximize the accessibility. And so we started doing some searching and looking around, and we ran across problem-based learning as a methodology. Um, My teacher in this was a uh, faculty member at at the school that shall not be named. And uh, (laughs) they, uh, they had an education background. And the interesting thing was uh, she taught me curriculum design. She taught me uh, problem-based learning. She had been a kindergarten teacher for years and years Mm -hmm. and years before she had gotten her doctorate and then gone on into, and she's written several books. But this method is applicable across a wide range of ages. She uses it with her, she used it with her kindergarten students. Mm -hmm. It's just the complexity of the problem and the complexity of what they're working on you have to gauge that for the appropriate group. Yeah. Um, so let's 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 dive right sure. in. Sure. So um, as uh, I want to sort of 
explore problem-based learning through an example of right. something that you, you're doing. So okay. can you uh, sort of introduce to our listeners as if we are the students or, or observing the class, how, what's one of your assignments that you're doing or one of the things you're doing in your class that sure. you're basing off of problem-based learning? Yeah, here's, uh, I'll give you an assignment that my class, my marketing class is working on. In fact, they're making their presentations on this this week, tomorrow okay. and Friday, uh, before they Happy leave. spring break. Happy spring break. Yep. I told them, you won't have anything to worry about during spring break. Yep. Uh, it's my guarantee. It all will be done beforehand. So um, this is a marketing class, and it's an introduction to marketing. It's a survey. So we're not getting deep. We're introducing them to many of the concepts, many of the, the elements of marketing. And so their particular uh, – actually – I'm sorry, I'm going to use my management class. Okay. Uh, it's the same thing. It's a survey of management. Mm-hmm. So um, their particular assignment, and let me just kind of read it to you a little bit here. Um, they, are, they work problem-based learning. They work in teams of people, and the teams can range four to six people in a particular team. You don't want too large teams, uh, but you don't want too small because the interaction – uh, between uh, members on the team is part of what gives PBL its robustness. You mm-hmm. get multiple perspectives, and you learn how to work together in a group, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that uh, the marketplace is telling at least, in, at least in business, that our students don't really know how to work well in group. They need they need to, to, to learn that, so they learn that through this. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the, the uh, problem for, for uh, they're working on right now is, is this. Your, your team um, has been challenged. Um, you are um, close to graduation, and you have decided that you want to be thoroughly prepared before you would go to any particular interviews. Mm-hmm. So your team was challenged by myself, by Dr. Boyce, to conduct a deep dive into the industry that you're interested in studying and that interested in particular working. And to identify at least three significant challenges facing that industry that are being faced by the managers Mm. uh, and that are possible things that you might have to face if you went to work for this organization as a manager. So find out, study, and see what you think are probably the three most significant challenges you might face. Of them... Select one that you think is the greatest, and then do some thinking about how you might respond to that challenge if, in fact, you face it mm. in your first job. Wow. V- highly applicable to what student, I mean, hopefully, students would do some of that before going into the job search. Well, hopefully. Hopefully. If not, what a great assignment that is building a necessary skill and meeting a need that they already have. Now, I gave them a list of 13 or 14 different industries to start with. In a later exercise where they're more comfortable with this, I probably wouldn't even have given that to them. But I gave them 12 or 13. Each team had to pick a different one. And so they're starting down that process of really studying that industry, learning the issues, the challenges, and, and then learning potential uh, solutions to that challenge. 
Awesome. So that's a typical kind of a, of a, of a PBL activity. Okay, so talk us through the PBL process because PBL is, uh, am, am I getting this right? It's a pedagogy and it's a process, Yes, right? and that's the thing I love about it. It is, um, it's a skill set they can acquire while they're learning about the content that they can use that skill set to help them then solve any problem that they might encounter uh, later on in life. Uh, the process works for really any type of problem, uh, whether it's a personal problem, a, a work problem, a problem with relationships. Uh, now, people, of course, are, are not quite as uh, <laughs> cut and dried as, <laughs> as other types of problems would be, but the process still works mm -hmm. and still helps them identify the, uh, the key criti the critical variables that promotes critical thinking, all of which help to, uh, to promote problem solving in all these particular areas. Yeah. So where would a student start? Okay, first step in, in problem-based learning is to identify and investigate the problem. Uh, and this isn't as uh, routine as it might sound because often when we're presented with problems, they're not the underlying cause of the issue. They may be a symptom. Right. And if we just treated the symptom and put a Band-Aid over it, the underlying problem was still there, is still festering, and it's going to pop up maybe someplace else, but it's, it's, it hasn't been resolved. Mm. So part of this uh, step one is identify, investigate the problem, is to uh, study it and convince yourself that this is the proper problem, or if it's not, what is mm. the underlying problem that has to, be, uh, has to be solved for the issue to go away. Mm. So that's step one. Okay. Step two, then, is... We need to, it's what we call, determine our knowledge deficiencies, which mm -hmm. is a fancy way of saying, let's put together what we know about the problem or we can acquire about the problem from work that other people have already done, secondary research, mm -hmm. and then determine what is it that we're going to need to find out in order to solve this problem. In other words, determine what's the gap mm -hmm. between the existing knowledge that we have and the knowledge that's going to be necessary to resolve the problem. Okay. So that would be step two. And this is all coming from the students. The students are generating what, what the gap is, the instructor. Where's the instructor at, at this yeah, point? Yeah, the instructor's role is different than in a traditional kind of lecture. Rather than being a, uh, uh, a sage on the stage is how we say it, we want them to become a guide on mm -hmm. the side. Mm -hmm. So they're there. Uh, they're there as a support role rather than being up on the, in the, uh, uh, you know, underneath the floodlights and giving the information. We want the students to have to go dig that information out. Yeah. Faculty can be there to point them in the right direction, mm -hmm. um, be there to answer questions if they don't understand or they're, um, they're not clear. So they're still there. They're still an important function. But research has shown that when students have the more active role in mm -hmm. learning material, have a more active role in even researching the material, they retain it mm -hmm. better. Um, they have a greater sense of ownership uh, over the material, and they're uh, developing a skill set 
as far as doing research and becoming a lifelong learner that they're going to need to have after they graduate from, from college. Mm-hmm. Um, students don't like to hear this, but I tell them that, you know, within five or six years, I think is what the most recent study I saw, half the material that they learn in school is outdated. Mm-hmm. So if they're going to stay current in whatever discipline, they have to become a lifelong learner. So learning how to dig out this information while they can do it here at school is an important skill that will, again, help them be successful in the marketplace. Well, and that, I think that is the answer to a question that I've been thinking about. Uh, it's a it's a question that my colleague, Julie Borkin, whose office is right next door to mm-hmm. mine, we talk about all the time is, how long will you let a student go down the path that you know isn't, the, 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 right. the answer is not at the end of that path. Right. How, well, how long will you let students in a discussion or in an assignment go down the wrong path? But I think the answer is until they either get to a point where they can't go any further or they realize they're on the wrong path. Because if their knowledge is going to be outdated in five to six years and they have to learn, an important part of learning is 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 screwing up of failing yes of, of learning from down. Your exactly yeah I and that's a great point I tell my students that that's has improved my effectiveness because I've made so many mistakes <laughs> mistakes in life I have always got something relevant that I can can relate to them uh, because I learn more from my mistakes than I do from my successes uh, and so uh, you want to let them go until either um, to, to what you you pointed out, or uh, you can see it's just generating a lot of frustration, and mm. you might you know, might just kind of sure. step in to try to you know give them a hint that perhaps they're they're looking at the wrong the wrong approach. So the, either the problem that they're looking at is the wrong problem, or they're the information deficiencies that they're identifying. If, if those are creating frustrations, might be a point to step in and say, have you thought about... Yeah, an, an example, and we didn't get to um, look at all the details in the session yesterday, but there was an example of that in that in that particular mm. assignment where they were... Um, the assignment for those that weren't there is um, there had been a statement made in a presidential campaign that if Americans just properly inflated their tires, that would save enough oil so that we wouldn't need to do offshore drilling was mm-hmm. essentially what the comment. So their task was to verify, was that a, a, a fair statement? And if it, if it would save oil, how, how would that help in lowering uh, gas prices at the fuel pump for them? You know, how would that be relevant to them? Well, one of the steps in the process is once you determine what you don't know, you have to fill that gap, mm-hmm. develop a research plan for going to fill that gap. Well, one of the key things they needed to know was what's the percentage of Americans that are driving around uninflated with uninflated tires, mm-hmm. underinflated tires, I should say. So this was at a land, state land-grant institution, and the students realized it was a, a big school, 50,000 students. They had uh, 20,000 students living on campus, mm. and they had something like 15,000 or so student cars in the student parking lot. Wow. So they got permission from the administration to go and measure the tire pressure on the <laughs> no cars kidding. in the student parking lot. Wow. The professor let them go. He, they didn't ask him. They didn't ask for his opinion, and they were all excited. They spent a week 
um, and went through all the student parking lots and just measured tire pressure. As they were starting to do the analysis yep. of this, then the faculty member said, okay, they've gone far <laughs> enough, they'll learn this lesson. And then he just asked them a question. Yeah. And he said, students that live on campus drive their cars maybe on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Is that really a representative driving pattern for the average American? So they realized all that work they had done was kind of wasted. It forced them to go back and really dig into representative samples and yeah. all the, the proper sampling technique. Yeah. A lesson they won't forget. A lesson they will not forget. Um, so I, I think you want to look at that from the perspective of what approach is going to help them learn mm -hmm. the most. Sometimes it's, bam, running into that wall mm -hmm. and then realizing... Oh, well, now we feel kind of, kind of sheepish that we didn't think about that. Sometimes they're not going to learn because they're so frustrated, and so those might be when you need to intervene and pull them back a little bit uh, and get them more focused on a, on a different uh, direction. So that's one of these things that takes some experience. I'm learning how to do all that, um, but uh, those are some of the skills that make a good PBL instructor. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so I feel like I've situated a little bit this idea of, uh, success and failure and how to let students struggle a little bit with that. So we've identified the problem. We've begun to identify what we know and what we don't know. Right. What would we be asking students to do next? Okay, then ultimately um, we're going to need to come up with a, a research plan for how do we fill those gaps, okay? In the case of the tire pressure, it's somehow we've got to get a sample. Mm -hmm. uh, other data might be able to get through secondary research, uh, other types of research. So we have to come up with a research plan mm -hmm. for filling the gap. And then once we've gone through whatever institutional processes there might be involved, if it's an IRB or some other type of uh, mm -hmm. policies that you'll, we have to do, then we want to go implement that research plan, collect the data, Go ask the questions, do interviews, whatever we need to to try to fill in that gap. Once we get that information, then the next step is to develop some potential solutions. Mm -hmm. We really strongly recommend in PBL that we have more than one. We'd like to have at least two or three alternative solutions. Right. Because after all, we're trying to come up with the best solution that we can, not mm -hmm. just simply a solution. Okay. And the only way we, we know if we've got a better solution than any other is to compare them against each other. So if we can come up with, you know, a handful of potential solutions and then we analyze them mm. to determine which do we think is going to be uh, the, the most successful, be the best for the situation. Mm. And then the last two steps are we would do uh, either implement it or if it's a big project, big thing, we might do an a implementation plan uh, talking about the changes that are going to have to be made to implement this. The last, set, uh, the last step of it is an assess and reflect yeah. where we go back and what did we do well, what did we not do well, what did we learn about the content, mm -hmm. what did we learn about the process so that the next time we go through it, it will be a, a better outcome. Yeah. So those are the steps, really just six simple steps. One of the things that stands out the most to me is about where this takes our students, right? This idea that this is a process that they're learning that's going to be applicable 
beyond the assignment itself feels really important. Um, but I wonder if we can back up a minute to before the process mm -hmm. starts. What skills, prior knowledge do students need to have before I could go into the classroom, you know, after spring break and run with this? Well, you can start, um, you don't really have to have a lot of skills mm -hmm. um, in order to start this process. It just depends on the kind of a problem and the complexity of a problem you're going to give them. What I did this semester, because I'm doing it in all of my classes, but it's all new. It was all new to everybody. Mm -hmm. So I created what I call a, a baby step PBL. Mm -hmm. It's a relatively simple problem. Uh, gave them the problem, and that problem was essentially there are five main dysfunctions mm -hmm. of teams. Mm -hmm. So the problem was for them to look at those five and come up with a plan that if this dysfunction arose in their team, how would they address it? Mm. So I gave them the dysfunction so they already knew what the problem was. It was kind of, it was, but it was to get them into starting to think about the process, mm -hmm. learn the process, start to take some initial steps, and develop some uh, collaborative uh, uh, skills. Uh, a big part of this process is uh, you want to start them off with a team contract so they clearly define what their expectations are of each other. That helps them hold each other accountable to them. So I have my teams all uh, do a team contract as the very first step. And in that, they do a skills inventory. Mm. So from what they, their initial understanding of the problem, I tell them, go in and just list any skills that the group has and list them as either a, 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 a something that's a strength or something that perhaps is a weakness. Because part of the task is for them not only to use those skills on the problem, but to teach each other. So mm -hmm. I might be strong in one area, you're, you're uh, but weak in some, and yours are the opposite. So we can teach each other while yeah. we're working as a team on this particular process. And I have them change their team contract with each new problem because the skill sets might be different depending upon the particular problem. Mm. So that gets them starting to learn the process, learning the skills, starting to understand the language. So I start them that way. And then I give them a, a little more complicated problem that involves whatever the discipline is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what I've got is the students are gonna come back from spring break and they'll have their major uh, problem, mm -hmm. which they'll have all the rest of the, of the semester to work on that particular problem. And that will be a deep dive into some element of the discipline yeah. that requires uh, you know, problem solving. So you are, setting clear expectations for how the team will function. You're scaffolding out the process with them with something that's a little bit more low stakes, right. something in the middle, middle that's going to stretch them a little bit right. more, and then you're going to really let them... Let them go. Yeah, go on a major problem. Cool. I, uh, I have them do status reports every two okay. weeks. Okay. So... Um, uh, so I can see where they are. I always try to wander around and mm -hmm. listen in, but with with a big class, I've got 30-some students, so I've got six groups, so yeah. I can't be six places at one time. So I have them all do a status report so I can get a sense of where's, what's going on, where mm -hmm. are they, what's their thinking, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I need to, I can call a meeting with that, just that particular right. team. And you know, what I one of the things that I really appreciate in what you just described is they're on teams, but they're not just. It's not just a um, loosely structured group activity. Right. The comment from industry that we need people who know how to work on teams, assigning more group work is not the answer to that question. If we don't teach how to, to work, work on, on teams, team. we're just contributing right. to poor behavior. Right. 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 Um, in our intro to OrgCom class, we talk about um, the three virtues of an ideal team player. And we talk about uh, how to develop these in yourself and how to work with others who seem to be lacking in some right. of these. Right. It's just a foundation of thinking reflexively about yourself on a team. But we need to get to the next stage, which is how do you communicate better on a team? How do you delegate on a team? How do you manage uh, uh, dynamic, complex projects with right. multiple deadlines on the team? And those are important pieces of this that it sounds like as you're thinking about you know strengths that they bring to a team and the contracts and the way the work is flowing, it seems like it isn't just assigning more group work to accomplish that. No, and that's one of the things that um, I'm excited about the future. There's so many opportunities for collaboration between departments with mm-hmm. us. You just raised a number of excellent points, things that would uh, strengthen their ability to work in a problem-solving environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I would dearly at some point like to see if we could take a course and have it be team taught by people from different departments who came together to share their expertise and to help enrich the students with that combined perspective type of thing. I think there's so many opportunities. And again, the type of problem that they're going to work on gives them that opportunity. You give them problems that are multidisciplinary in nature, they're going to have to be Mm multidisciplinary in their approach. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So lots of fun. Sometimes uh, the problems that our students are dealing with, um, well, you had mentioned that it's important that this is a current problem that doesn't have a tidy solution, that this is sort of what separates PBL from case Case studies. studies. That's correct. Right. Okay. Hang with me for a second. Sometimes, oftentimes, our students in our classes aren't able to implement the change that they come up with, the solution that they come up with, right? So is it sufficient to just come up with or develop or propose a change plan? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. and in fact, that's what we did um, in the uh, doctoral program. Okay. Because, and of course, in a doctoral program, they're taking on very complex problems. And a lot of times, those problems might have significant budgetary Mm -hmm. uh, implications. The, Mm -hmm. The organization that they're working with might say, you know, this is a great idea. We don't have it in the budget to do this year, but we definitely want to do this for next year. So what we have them do is put together a change, a high-level change management plan so that the organization's got a sense of here's what are the major things we're going to have to do to, to implement this, and we have them give them a uh, preliminary budget and a timeline so they can use it for planning purposes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's all preliminary because between now and when they're ready to move forward, things may have changed. So they'll have to, you know, mm-hmm. they'll have to go back in. If it's any length of time, they'll have to go back in and just review it, update it if necessary. 
So, uh, but that's why we, we keep it high level mm-hmm. uh, because the specifics may change between now and whenever they're actually going to move forward. I found myself thinking of a handful of students who I can imagine becoming frustrated either with the inability to implement the solution they've come up with or uh, because it's a current problem, it's complex and it, it's a changing, evolving problem. Mm-hmm. They need to know when to stop researching and start planning. Yes, you can't uh, be a perfectionist in this approach. Um, often, uh, and in, in particular, that's another difference between the academic kind of mindset and the workplace mindset. The workplace isn't going to want to let you just sit around for another year while you study the problem. They want, they've got a problem, and they want it, you know, at least a workable solution. It may not be the perfect solution, mm-hmm. but making some progress on the particular issue. So that's something that, um, you know, we need to train our students a bit, uh, make them realize that, um, and that's why it's important that it's not one right answer. Um uh, it's a it's a plausible approach, and that it's reasonable they can defend their particular approach, um, because there may be others. But all you can do is what you come up with. So we um, we want our students to develop that skill set and recognize that um, it's the best of the alternatives they have. It may not be perfect, but if it makes progress on the problem, it's better than not. Sitting and sitting still and not doing anything about the problem. Right, Jeff. One of the red threads of the podcast um, is this idea of a conversation on campus related to teaching excellence and, and faith integration. Mm-hmm. Um, you you mentioned something that you called VBM um, in your session that you see as an opportunity for problem based learning to be a a, a an integrated element of your faith in your teaching. Can you explain a little bit what VBM is sure. and how it connects to this idea of problem-based learning? From a business perspective, um, we are uh, sadly in need of a more ethical framework in the business community. When we as a society have taken God out of the, the discussion of what's right and what's wrong, we left this huge gaping hole. Uh, and business um, has not always been particularly honorable in how they've tried to uh, fill that particular hole. And so we felt there was a, a strong need to have a framework that could become uh, normative, that, that would provide clear direction on what is wrong and what's right uh, and help make better decisions that were in alignment with those values. So the virtuous business model is predicated on, uh, it's kind of built around the, uh, the Army's leadership model of uh, be, know, and do. Mm-hmm. Be being what are we at our heart? What are our core values? Mm-hmm. What do we know? What have we learned? And then finally, then what do we do? We want our actions to be driven by what we know to be right and wrong, which are in turn driven by our core values mm-hmm. of, uh, of who we are. 
And at that core, we want to have uh, Christian principles uh, so that even if the person is not a believer, they can buy into the concept of being honest, being um, having integrity, the mm. you know all the various values that we describe as virtue. They can still buy into those even if they're not a believer. Mm. Part of the underlying philosophy of the virtuous business model is um, God's word describes, gives us the the most accurate picture of the state of reality and of the state of humanity. Mm. And any decision system that we use that's based on a more accurate understanding of what reality is, is bound to be more effective than some value system that's not based on reality. So again, even if you're not a believer, if you follow the basic precepts, you'll find yourself making better decisions that ultimately will have better results because it's based on a more accurate understanding of what the world really is mm. and how the world really operates. So the virtuous business model is a result of seeing a problem and providing a solution, but it also helps frame problems that our well, students may encounter? Well, actually, I mean, the virtuous business model was developed before the problem-based okay. learning. Okay. okay, And it's really, it was intended to provide an ethical framework mm. that could help us as we just had to do day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Now, one of the things I have found is that in the problem-solving matrix uh, of, 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 of problem-solving, problem-based learning, you have to make decisions. Mm. Well, what we do by merging those two is just saying the decisions that we make, we just want them to be in alignment with our virtuous business uh, uh, of perspective. It, uh, it helps inform and guide the problem-solving process so that it's being done in a manner that we could stand in front of Christ and say, we had this issue, we solved this problem, and we did it in a way that brings glory and honor to you. That's what the model is. And so... Um, PBL, because of the fact that you're making decisions, which implies you're going to put some sort of a value on those decisions, yeah. is, is ripe for plugging in a framework that helps put value on there. Now, it doesn't have to be VBL. It could be something, a VBM, but it could be something else. Mm. But to me, it's just such an ideal opportunity for us to integrate our faith into the workplace in a way that's actionable, mm. a way that can make a difference into the workplace. And that's what I'm all about, trying to help our students make a difference in their workplace where God has put them. Well, that's what we've been talking about, that our students find most valuable when they leave and that their, <laughs> their future employers hope that uh, our students are able to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm excited about the, the potentials that uh, problem-based learning offers for our students. Thanks for doing this work, Jeff. Thanks for uh, for sharing this work for, with us. Thanks for being a part of the conversation today. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. If you're looking for more ways to get connected to the podcast, you can always email bctlepodcast at taylor.edu. This podcast is a resource that's made possible by the Beattie Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence and is produced by Caroline Paschal. 
The mission of the BCTLE is to encourage and equip you, our faculty, in your calling as teachers, your care for students, and your designs for learning. We want you to know that we see what you do for your students, and we appreciate everything that you do to create meaningful learning experiences for the whole person enrolled in your class. We hope that this podcast helps you make Monday just a little bit better.